Greetings from the people and session of First Pres Ann Arbor with our gratitude for our connection in the body of Christ and in our presbytery, but also our connection because we share a deep and wide and big love for Pastor Angela. Much of M. Scott Fitzgerald's life was alcoholism, mental instability, and marital infidelity three cords in a braid of debauchery and disease. In 1936, one of the greatest American authors of all time was falling apart. Fitzgerald's life, his wife, and his world were full of contradiction and conflict, yet he had to find a way to function. Authoring an essay entitled The Crack Up, he laid out all those things wrong in his life, but he began by getting at one thing he believed was right, offering this kernel of wisdom. The test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Fitzgerald's choices were often bad, leaving him paralyzed. Differing passions fought for his attention, his love of words, and his love of alcohol. Sifting through the wreckage of past choices, living with uncertainty, holding truths he knew about himself in tension, in order to survive, he had to find a way to keep going. To keep from cracking up or falling apart, he faced the conflicts around and within him. Writing as only he could in his Fitzgeraldian way, I must hold in balance the sense of futility of effort and the sense of the necessity to struggle, the conviction of the inevitability of failure and still the determination to succeed, the contradiction between the dead hand of the past and the high intentions of the future. The great author pointed to struggles in life we know well, the three C's, conflict, contradiction, and cognitive dissonance. Our lives may not be so dramatic as his, and dear God, I hope not, but there is a shared experience we balance many conflicts and many conflicting truths, yet we function quite well. When disciplining children or teenagers, determining choices for our elderly parents, facing treatment decisions around a terminal diagnosis, or checking a box on the ballot, every day we balance many realities, often opposing intention. At key times of transition and decision-making, we process conflicting ideas. Deciding to retire, for example, we ponder the positive aspects of letting go of work alongside the positive aspects of accumulating more benefits by staying with it. Pondering a painful divorce, we consider the case for staying together while picking through the logic of moving apart adding a baby to our family, or adding a downstairs bathroom to our house. We look at our ideas and expectations which are in conflict, and we make a decision. Life is never black and white, yet still we make choices. But like Fitzgerald, we also have to deal with our cognitive dissonance, 
the discomfort we feel when we must hold two or more contradictory beliefs or values at the same time, when new information conflicts with what we know to be true, we don't like it. Leon Festinger discovered this about us, that we strive for internal consistency. Humans don't like dissonance, and when we feel it, we are highly motivated to reduce it, to avoid it, and to resolve it. This is what it is to be alive. Life is complicated. We've known this for centuries, back to Aesop in the mid-sixth century, when the fox in his fable failed to reach the desired bunch of grapes and decided he didn't want that fruit after all because it was sour. Not all grapes are sour, so I hold the study that tells me a glass of red wine might raise my risk of breast cancer next to one which tells me it might lower my risk of heart disease. And the wine won. <laughs> you keep a corporate job you despise because that is better than losing all the energy and effort you've poured into it over the years. See it in our sports. Clevelanders cheered for LeBron James's logic when he chose to return to play for the Cavs in 2009, but they vilified him for using that same logic to take his talents to L.A. Christians this year will weigh our concerns about Halloween having a traditional emphasis upon ghosts, witches, and devils, the dark side, along another reality that candy and costumes are just plain fun. And I felt the cognitive dissonance of our president this week when he talked about the Saudis possibly killing Khashoggi versus the fact that he knows lots of them that are good people. Classic cognitive dissonance. We all go there. The three C's aren't limited to our culture. They are an unavoidable component, in fact, of faith. What we do is often in conflict with the scriptures that we seek to follow. Jesus does not equivocate. We are to sell all we have and give to the poor. And yet we take on those people in poverty who scam the system and take advantage of welfare, undermining its overall ability to help people. Jesus has a radical understanding of forgiveness. Yet we know abusive relationships are not what God calls us to, and we wisely leave them. Scripture tells us in Timothy that women should not speak in the church, yet we value the gifts and calling of women in ministry and engage them fully in service to God's church. In fact, today we choose Angela. We have cognitive dissonance and we make choices in spite of it. It is what we do. Contradiction, conflict, and cognitive dissonance also arise within a church as we encounter one another because you and I bring to this place the conflict and contradiction we have within ourselves. It is the tension that is the saint and the sinner within each of us. We conflicted human beings form community. And God somehow takes all our individual messiness and makes us a congregation. A church is a wide canvas for the three C's. We see it, explore it, we endure it, and we must draw from it to be stronger. In my family's small Southern Presbyterian church, we learned one Sunday at the coffee hour that the longtime clerk of session, a fine man and a great clerk, who was married to my eighth grade science teacher, 
was involved with a younger woman in the choir. A few months later, he divorced his wife and married the other, and my teacher left our church. The clerk continued to serve throughout those months of change, even for another two decades. Looking back now, I wonder what our elders and our pastor pondered as this became known. On one hand, we expect elders to lead the way and we hold them to a higher standard. But on the other, we are all sinners standing in the need of grace. What spiritual contradictions and conflicts were they enduring? How did their conversations with God and one another move them through that cognitive dissonance? You see, Christians do not turn away in the face of these three C's. In the calling of Matthew and two of Jesus' healing miracles, we confront some of those tensions, holding multiple ideas, opposing ideas in balance. It is not, however, Fitzgeraldian first-rate intelligence that we are after, but first-rate faith. Being a Christian in community is to live with, love through, and serve, despite those inherent tensions. One conflict in today's text arises from a lack of clarity. There was Matthew sitting in the tax booth when Jesus walks by and utters but two words, follow me. That's it. A blank and emotionless telling of the most transformative moment in Matthew's life. Now on the one hand, this direction is clear and concise. But what was it in those two words that led Matthew to upend his life, leave his work, and take this journey? Does Jesus offer him an invitation? Or was it a command? What about Jesus called to Matthew, his irresistible draw or his authoritative voice? Perhaps it was a bit of both. Every morning you and I wake up, we make the choice to follow Jesus. We seek to shed the sin in our lives and pursue our purpose with him, telling others that this is the only life worth having. Something drives our faith. Is it the graceful work of the Holy Spirit leading us to wholeness? Or are we locked into a faith which focuses on what we need to do and believe in order to be right? Are we compelled to Jesus in response to his love or to cope with our fear? Following Jesus means that we invite others. How do you speak of Jesus, of belief, of being a disciple to a neighbor of no faith or to a grandchild being raised without the church? Pastors in this pulpit can issue both invitations and commands. Is the right way to be low-key, folksy, and compelling? Or to be clear and unequivocal? Resolving my own cognitive dissonance, I believe that Matthew leaves it vague so that we might be open to both. We tell of the inclusive invitation Jesus' deep love gives us, and we tell of a faith that is demanding choosing a life that will require things, yet with it, bring eternal salvation. 
The second conflict, deeply connected to the first, arises from a presence of clarity. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, Jesus says to the misguided disciples, quoting Hosea. Uh, the two gospel ideas of judgment versus grace. Two things often in conflict, two of the hardest things for Christians to hold in balance. We know the Bible calls us to a faith that has integrity. From the Ten Commandments to the Sermon on the Mount, the Bible is our guide. Faith often works this way. First, we believe, and then we behave, and then we know that we belong. But here, Christ leads with mercy, with compassion, inclusive acceptance, and he flips the paradigm, eating with tax collectors and sinners. In him, he says that we all belong. And knowing that, we come to believe, and then we behave differently, becoming more like him. Jesus chooses mercy over judgment. Do we? A young blogger trying to make sense of fate wrote, wrote these words, Sacrifice and mercy are good things, both good things. If, as Christ did, we choose sacrifice for ourselves and mercy for others. They can alternately become bad things if we choose mercy for ourselves and sacrifice for others if we are indulgent with ourselves and rigorous with others, ready to excuse ourselves and quick to judge others. When the Supreme Court upheld same-gender marriage, the session of our church in Ann Arbor made of elders with strong and differing opinions about the definition of marriage struggle to decide whether to allow these same-gender weddings in our sanctuary. I'm sure Angela remembers this well. Our members wrestled with the issues for many months. Some elders admitted they felt burdened by a decision that seemed to be framed on compassion versus sacrifice mercy or judgment. They wanted to hold these in balance, and yet they had to decide. In that moment, we wrestled. Here in calling Matthew and in claiming these people, and not the Pharisees as his community, Jesus resolved the cognitive dissonance in that he desired mercy over sacrifice. A third conflict arises from Jesus' two healing miracles. Here, Jesus prefers the sinner to the righteous. He chooses the sick over the well, calling Matthew and other social outcasts, not the in-group, to serve. There is an acute need that the Jewish leader has. His daughter, uh, the daughter of an insider, she has died. It's a crisis, and Jesus goes to meet that need immediately. But then he stops. He sets urgency aside. He becomes available and accessible to an outcast woman with a long-standing chronic need. Jesus chooses the outsider over the insider. Which are we? Sitting in this breathtaking sanctuary, we are comfortable. And while each of us is bearing our own burdens in life, some chronic, some acute, we are hardly outcasts. We are still sinners, those who have tried to be righteous, who long to be disciples. We leaders in the faith may be at times poor in spirit, 
but we are hardly poor. At the least, we are rich in the grace of God's presence through one another. Cognitive dissonance is here, and I cannot resolve it, but I must encounter it. Angela, you are called to a faith that is not easy. And that uneasy faith makes ministry hard. The generation older than you and I, knowing that the Lord requires much of us, seeing that God prefers that we try to be righteous, often chooses sacrifice over mercy. The generation younger than us, growing up in a more complex and complicated culture, less burdened by biblical requirements in some ways, skews toward compassion, seeing that Jesus invites us to encounter a God who comes first to the poor and the broken among us. Angela, we are in need of your leadership more than ever to every generation. As a brilliant pastor, writer, scholar, as a loving friend and faithful servant, you and all of us will struggle to hold opposing ideas in balance and live within the tensions that arise from conflict. Leaders like you must be trusting, brave, unsure, and open to hearing the questions and doubts of the sinners and saints among us and within us neither abandoning our Christian beliefs nor diluting them to the point where they have no passion. We do not run from conflict and contradiction and cognitive dissonance. Church provides an accepting and safe place where tough questions can be asked, if not definitively settled. Faith is about living the questions, not holding all the answers. The three C's are compelling. Dissonance is a part of faith's journey, and the church must accept it. Encountering conflicts, we encounter ourselves and there discern that what we believe not only matters to us, it matters a whole lot to God. And this is how we grow. Friends, we don't have to crack up. More than first-rate intelligence, we need a first-rate faith holding opposing ideas in our hearts, holding together our ability to thrive, holding different people together in Christ and his church, because that is a faith that will make us well. Jesus allowed contradiction to remain. He did not dispel conflict, and he does not remove cognitive dissonance human and divine, king and servant, alpha and omega. In him, everything comes together, every difference. He even holds different people together. And it's called the church. And welcome, Angela, and all of you to it. May God grace you with the spirit these people deserve and us with the vision of his love to be the church to one another. Amen.